All right, people, we are back. Welcome back to another episode of Pearl Snap Tactical. I'm your host, Mark, joined by my brother, friend, partner in crime, Alex. Hey, how's it going? It's been a long time since we uh, done one of these. It's been a, it quite a bit going on, huh? Yeah, we have had a little hiatus. Part of that, uh, I got to take the hit for that. I was gone for a month to do a JRTC rotation. So um, I'm back from that, <laughs> from that uh, adventure. And so now, yeah, there is a lot going on. And this is going to be a different little episode. We're going to cover kind of the uh, the things going on in Afghanistan right now, linked to a DHS um I don't know, a public service announcement or something that they put out. That's what you call it. Oh, a while back ago. And I want to talk about how those two uh, could be linked. And, you know, at the outset, I think everybody, you could just look on your newsfeed. Everybody's got an opinion about what's going on. And um, we're certainly not here to frame ourselves as experts, but we do have a little bit of experience in this world. And really what I think our goals and objectives today and you correct me if I'm wrong, is it to do a play-by-play analysis of what's going on, but just trying to help the security-minded citizen frame this thing right so that as they're watching the news coverage or making decisions for their own preparedness, that you can frame things in the right way. Because that you're never going to have all the facts. And a lot of times, some of the information you're working with it's not going to be correct anyway. Uh, the majority you, of the time, the information you get is not working. It's not correct anyway. Yeah. So. so you and I both have experience with that. So then it's not always, then it comes down to the case of, all right, well, as long as we can frame things right, that that's something we can work with, you know, because then we can gather and kind of correct the facts or get the right facts as we go along. But as long as we can frame things right, that will help us, uh, process, filter, and kind of assess the information that we are getting, right? Yeah, and spe- especially without a in-depth history lesson of uh, what's been going on, because that, you know, we're going to try to do without that right now and just give a basic basic outline of what's kind of going on there. Yeah, exactly. So with the things with the recent withdrawal from Afghanistan, that is a complicated thing, and there's a lot of finger pointing, a lot of blame, uh, saying we should have done this or we didn't do enough of this. And and I think both sides of the aisle can agree that it's a complicated animal. But the fact of the matter is we've been in Afghanistan for over 20 years, and you know it's debatable whether or not we're going to – we've gotten the results that we wanted. And, of course, we could have done things better. But here, here's where I want to start with. I'll give a, a brief framework of where this issue began. And it begins long before 9-11. If you want to understand what Afghanistan means for you, the concealed carry holder, security or security-minded citizen, you know, we're going to look at Afghanistan that goes way back before 9-11. It really takes place in the 80s, where Afghanistan uh, becomes prominent on the geopolitical stream uh, scene and then begins to have implications for our daily lives. So back in the 80s, when the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan occurred, there on there were there was a drive by the CIA and Intel community to stand up a, a resistance force there within the country. 
And they didn't just go organically in Afghanistan. They weren't just raising up, quote unquote, freedom fighters organically in Afghanistan. They actually were recruiting them around the world and recruiting them in the U.S. And those were set up and they were called the Al-Kifa centers. These were recruiting centers that were scattered across the country. And the first one was in Arizona, I believe in Tucson, back in the mid 80s. And they, they rose in number to 33. And basically, these were uh, set up by the U.S. government in um, coordination with the CIA to recruit uh, jihadi fighters that would then go on and battle the evil empire known as the USSR. So from our way of thinking, you know, back in the 80s, if you think about where we were, you know, the, the doctrine of jihad, the idea of the caliphate, the resurrection of a caliphate, that was not really something that was understood or known or even heard of in the Western mind, uh, certainly not amongst the politicians and the, and the folks that were, were driving this initiative, right? But it was within the minds of the fighters that were being recruited and sent over to Afghanistan with CIA-backed money. This was the, the recruitment piece was, hey, we've got an infidel invading our lands. We need to raise up jihadi fighters to go out there and vanquish this. And so it was a religious duty, and it was part of the doctrine of jihad. And they were very successful, and they raised up these fighters called the Mujahideen. And the Mujahideen were made up of Afghanis, but also other people, Saudis, Pakistanis, um, uh, American-born folks, I mean, uh, Muslim fighters that went over there. Among them was a guy by the name of Osama bin Laden as well. And so when people talk about uh, back in the day that would be labeled conspiracy theorists by, you know, if they said Osama bin Laden was a CIA asset, he was. He was a CIA asset. But in terms of developing, recruiting and helping fight the Soviets there. Right. So he didn't remain a CIA asset, obviously. But at one time he was, uh, as were others that were part of that initiative. So the Mujahideen, right, are the fighters, which then over time became um, and I'm just kind of broad brush stroke in this, they ended up becoming uh, Al-Qaeda or part of Al-Qaeda, right? So at the conclusion of the war in Afghanistan between the Mujahideen and the, and the Soviets, right, that created then, you know, the Soviets leave, that creates a power vacuum, and in comes the Taliban at some point, which was the governing force there that uh, took over and they, with the goal of implementing a Sharia compliant state. Now, you know, so that did not go the way that, you, you know, politicians and policymakers envisioned, you know, back in the 80s, their thought were, was we'll create this democracy, right? But the fighters and the Mujahideen that went there, you know, we didn't understand what their, their ultimate aims and end state was, was to create an, as I, I, emirate or a small, you know, 
Islamic Republic or whatever, whatever, however you want to phrase it, there in Afghanistan. Now, the ramifications for us here in our society. After that occurred, you've got a ton of these fighters that have been trained, fully indoctrinated, um, that now want to do what every jihadi does, is that is to participate in ushering in the global caliphate. And so then they begin to export jihad worldwide. And so that's where my, my limited kind of connection to this is like when I was in Bosnia, I saw with my own eyeballs, Mujahideen fighters walking around, you know, the outskirts of Sarajevo and those other places uh, and, and other guys from around the world that were there to support the Bosnian Muslims who had kind of gotten it handed to them by the Bosnian Serbs. Right. So you've got these guys floating around and it wasn't just in Bosnia. We find them in the Philippines with the, the uh, Al-Qaeda affiliate there, Abu Sayyaf. You've got them in Africa. You've got them all over the place. But that nexus had its maybe not its total origin, but certainly a significant uh, portion of its beginnings there in that conflict in the 1980s. Now, if we want to talk about networks that were developed even here in the U.S., it goes further back with the Muslim Brotherhood, which came to America in the 1960s, of which Al-Qaeda, Islamic State, all those jihadi groups come out of that. But that's a conversation for another time. All right. So that is just setting the stage kind of where we are and how how this thing has played out. And then, of course, Al Qaeda becomes very active in Afghanistan. They plan the 9-11 attacks. And uh, here we are now where 20 years later, it's impacted the way you and I travel, the way you and I open up a bank account, you know, really all kinds of aspects upon our lives. All right. Now, with the withdrawal and the controversy surrounding that, right, and this is where, you know, you've got some things that I want you to weigh in, Alex, about the, how the, the narrative is being framed upon, well, why we had to get out of here. I think most clear-minded Americans are of the agreement that, you know, we don't need to be there forever, and we've probably been there long enough. The question now is how you know, why are we withdrawing and, and the manner in which we do it? Right. And that or that at least I think for me, that should be what the conversation is. And so, you know, what is your take on some of the news and, and the kind of the narrative that that you've kind of you and I were talking about, you're kind of at odds with that you think is not getting out as someone who well, first of all, let's talk about your background. We've talked about this before. You were, you know, five years in Ranger Battalions, and you did how many deployments to Afghanistan? Four. Yeah, four. Yeah, four. So you spent some time there. And what what were you seeing and some of the uh, on the news feeds and the press conferences? Well, I mean, it's not only that, but I mean, most of uh, most of the soldiers, the guys on the ground, they will probably tell you that if we pulled out of Afghanistan, it would be less than a year and it would be right back to the way it was before we went in there. Mm -hmm. So what we had going on right now was a very minimal presence, um, you know, supporting the Afghan army through Intel and air support. Mm -hmm. um, we haven't lost an American soldier in 18 months 
since uh, Trump signed the peace agreement with uh, the Taliban, I think it was April 2020, uh, somewhere in there, if my mind serves me correct, but we hadn't lost a U.S. troops since February of 2020. So the the man in charge right now um, had a press conference yesterday and he spoke about how the Afghanis weren't fighting. That is false. Um, the Afghans uh, have lost more people per year than we've lost in 20 years. So to come out and blatantly state that the Afghanis weren't pulling their part, pulling their weight, is not accurate right at all so this i mean i've heard people draw correlations between uh, afghanistan and vietnam it's not the same it's not the same the afghanis were still fighting um and, and vietnam america was doing most of the heavy lifting in the fights mm -hmm. there mm -hmm. so um there's a little bit of difference in that. Uh, I mean, the embassy falling and that kind of stuff is still, you know, it's the same. We should have learned from history because, yeah. you know, most of the leadership right now in our country was in office during yeah. that time. Yeah. Which yeah. is in inexcusable. Yeah. In my opinion. But, yeah. um, so based on just kind of what you saw from when you were there, and just based on just looking at kind of the raw data that's come out, I mean, your opinion is the narrative that the the Afghanis weren't doing enough to fight to try to stabilize and hold their country. You would say that's false. You would I say would, that they were fighting and yes. they were were doing their part. I would say they were fighting. Yes. And then I mean, not only that, but the people that worked with us, the Terps, the, uh, you know, um, various Afghan units that worked mm -hmm. with us. Um, when you look them in the face and tell them, yeah, we got your back. And then you leave in the middle of the night, leave them flapping in the breeze. That kind of sends a negative message, not only in, to the people in Afghanistan, but to the rest of the world. And this yeah. has global implications. Like yeah. this, is, this is rough. Yeah. Right. All right. So we've got the idea. So we're going to blast the narrative that, you know, these guys are lazy, they're inept and they're not, or at the very least, you know, they're not trying to fight uh, for themselves. And, um, and then the uh, saying that the, the compare and contrast with Vietnam probably isn't an accurate one. You know, you and I talked about that before. And then is there, is there anything else you want to kind of bring out? Well, I mean, we've all seen the videos of, um, the C-17 rolling down the runway and people hanging off the side in order to, to get out of Afghanistan. And it, you really have to think for a minute, what would motivate a person to, to, to do that, mm -hmm. right? Hang on to the outside of a plane to travel. Them, them not knowing when the plane's going to land, yeah. traveling at however many thousand feet, what motivates a person to do that? And that's fear. And yeah. The, the Vietnam War, the, the, the war in Afghanistan, it's not the soldiers that lost the war. The soldiers did their job. They went mm -hmm. over and put the fear of God in the United States, the red, white, and blue, in anybody that would stand to do those people harm. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. And that comes with protections back home as well. You're doing that for a bigger purpose, and you're sacrificing, you're giving up 
your safety for freedom. Yeah. Yeah. And the soldiers are not the one that, that, that lost the war. So it's not, it's not a loss on the soldiers. It's a loss on leadership. Yeah. I mean, for sure. Like the dudes at the company level and below, I mean, solid, you know, I think, uh, you know, once you once you get up in the uh, the brigade level and above, I mean, there just really seems like uh, a loss of touch. And and then when you, I don't know, there's something that happens when those guys pin a star on their collar. It just seems like they become more just as bad as the politicians, I think. And uh, and you know, want to anyway. That I don't want to get too far into that. Yeah. You know, there, there's something though that so you know, what does this have to do with the common Joe on the street? And uh, there's something that you said that kind of that made me think of a point that's pretty important to make, especially because the next thing you're going to hear is about, you know, the need to scoop up as many of these people that we can rescue them, you know, these folks and bring them here, these refugees. Now, in the last few years, uh, I would say post Persian Gulf, you know, uh, unfortunately, the United States has been very good at causing um, or adopting policies that result in creating a refugee crisis. And there's been a certain segment of the political sphere that has clamored that, hey, we need to bring these people here. We need to give them safety, uh, shaming you that you're some kind of racist or bigot or, you know, if you if you don't want to bring these people here. Now, let me let me back up. There is a need to protect these folks and it's in our interest to do so. And it goes back to your point when you're talking about the desperation. So let's think about what is it? You said, you know, what is it? What kind of fear, as you said, would motivate someone to try to strap themselves on the outside of a of a plane that's taking off in flight? You just put yourself in those shoes. You know, what would what kind of fear would motivate you to do something so desperate? Right. And. It's not and it's not just fear, but we got to ask ourselves fear of what fear of who. Right. And I think when you watch and I would recommend everybody watch that footage, I think that gives you a real insight of the absolute evil that these folks were fleeing, that these jihadis, these Taliban, these uh, jihadi terrorists who were coming in to implement and and to um, oppress their people through a Sharia compliant state, right? And it's not just them. There are folks across the globe that would like to see that occur, not just in Afghanistan, but worldwide. And so when you think about that, you know, these are folks who have experienced it, or at least they're, you know, their, their parents have experienced it. They've lived through it and did not want to go back to that and were willing to literally chase down a doggone airplane and try to strap themselves on the outside, hang on to the wheels or whatever. I couldn't even imagine being in a, a position like that. No. So then now here's where we get into where we have to be very careful about what our policy is. Now, think about we've gone 20 years with a and I don't care and longer. And it doesn't matter what your uh, the administration or your affiliation where we haven't been allowed to talk about these guys and their threat doctrine. We haven't really been allowed to talk about what Sharia law is, you know, what its aims are. 
you know, the folks who practice it and want to see it implemented, what their goals and objectives are. Because anytime you start bringing that out, people start telling you, well, it's just a small percentage. It's not really the real thing. You're a bigot. You're a racist. You're that, you know, automatically name calling to shut down the debate. And I think that's all we want to ask is let's just have a debate. Let's look at what these ideas are that are driving these fighters that are driving groups like Taliban and Al Qaeda. You know, what is it that's driving them? That's that's causing them to do what they do. And let's take a look at that and see, hey, look, do we have groups here in this country that are espousing that? Do we have people within academia uh, or in the educational system and the entertainment system and maybe even the governmental system that have come inside through subversive means that are, are running penetration and influence informations that are trying to make that easier to to bring here or influence the way we live our lives, you know, and talk about that. And so here's here's where the Trojan horse or the Achilles heel is. If you don't do that and you're blind to it, then you open yourself for that coming here. So let me, I've danced around it enough. Let me just say it. You're going to be, you're going to see a big move and it's already started just like you did when the Syrian stuff was kicking off of groups political groups talk about, we need to open up the doors. We need to bring these people here. It's the right thing to do. We need to save these people. Well, and that's, that's fine. We can have that conversation, but I want to hear a conversation of what are we going to do to vet these folks? Because some of these people really do need help. They do need safety, but interspersed with that, there are going to be bad actors that are going to come in and reconnect or establish networks here that are going to cause problems security wise for the next 20 years here in this country. So what is the plan to vet those? And those groups that will espouse that type of policy have no plan to vet because they did with the Syrians and they don't, they don't have a plan because they don't want to hear that conversation. And this is my kind of question and I've gone long enough and I'll kind of shut up about it is I want to know what happened to the policy that we used to have you know, as long as I can remember, even back at least as late as the Persian Gulf, you know, with the Kurds of creating safe areas and sanctuary areas within these people's own countries where they live, they're used to the culture, they have a way of life. You know, all that stuff is set for them that we can't set up security areas, no go zones, no fly zones like we did for the Kurds in the Persian Gulf. Like, why is that not the, the de facto or default position anymore? Why is it that the default position is, oh, let's just bring them here by the hundreds of thousands when we can't even take care of our own homeless and our own veterans? That is the question for me. Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, I mean, it winds up costing less in the long run to help them where they are instead of bring all of that here. You don't have, you, you just can't help in the same way. Yeah. And if the, and if the mode is to, you know, we need these nations to be stable, then why are we taking the people that can work towards that and moving them out of the country? Like they need to stay there for stability state. Right. And you're not stopping the problem. Yeah. You're just pulling those people out to let the problem uh, continue. Yeah. You're not right. fixing the problem. Yes. Right. So, all right. So that is, I would say, you know, as a concerned citizen, as a security minded citizen, when you're trying to look at the second and third order effects of what this is going to mean, I would say that's, you know, 
we don't normally talk about this stuff like this on the podcast, but this was important enough that I would say, okay, that's the takeaway. That's the bottom line. You know, Joe Q citizen, when you're thinking about the second and third order effects and how to, you know, prepare yourself, you know, accordingly for the future, that's what I'm talking about with framing and understanding the problem. The rest of the, you know, should we, shouldn't we, you know, did this really happen? Did this person really say that, you know, that stuff gets worked out as you go along, but framing, what is the security risk? That's the security risk is that politicians and grifters who have a vested interest and take advantage of this crisis are going to do so. And that's how they're going to do it. Right. Right. All right. Speaking of grifters and politicians and all that kind of stuff, part and parcel with this here, I'm going to try to pull this, uh, this up. I think everyone has seen the graphic that's kind of gone viral on the news, on the news feeds and agencies that um, I kind of sarcastically re- referred to the DHS uh, public service annou- announcement of potential terror threats. All you got to do is get online and I don't think you can go more than 30 seconds without seeing this graphic. Right. And this one you sent to me yesterday, but it's got, um, you know, breaking news. It's uh, looks like this one you sent me uh, to me was from uh, NBC Nightly News, but said potential terror threats. And there's three big bullets that was uh, that were put out by DHS, Department of Homeland Security. Number one, potential terror threats, opposition to covid measures. That's number one, a potential terror threat, claims of election fraud, belief Trump can be reinstated. And then number three, 9-11 anniversary and religious holidays. I mean, I, 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 I was shocked. You know, I, <laughs> I, I, I don't even know where to go with that. That's yeah. I mean, the, it's um, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of speechless as I'm looking through these things, because basically what it is, it's just a talking point from a political side that says if you have any. Um, any alternative view, or if you even want to talk about it, um, you know, we're going we're gonna to label you as a terrorist. And that's incredibly dangerous. And so let's kind of backtrack and, and um, let's talk about what terrorism is. So it's um, now I'm going to kind of put aside my little infantry hat and I'm going to put on my intel guy uh, hat on. And I'm going to talk about from a standpoint of counterintelligence psychological operation and subversion, you know, the, the thing that, um, you know, out of the school of Mao and Stalin and Lenin and March, all those guys, you know, one of the big goals and objectives, they see war differently than we do kind of in the West. In the West, we see things as purely kinetic. You know, when I'm talking about what, you know, the industrialized nations of Western Europe and America, we kind of, and that's how we handle problems pretty much. It's, it's we just want to pound it into the ground yeah, and pound it fight. into submission. But kind of more in the East, they have a different way of doing it. They have more of a total war. And so they will do things first before they ever fire a shot is try to prep the conditions to make it advantageous for them through the use of subversion, influence operations, um, psychological operations. And one of the hallmarks of that, of doing that, is to own the narrative. 
and words become incredibly important. All right. So let's take this word terrorism. I think that if you went and interviewed and asked somebody on the street, hey, just, you know, your random citizen is like, tell me, you know, what is terrorism? Who is a terrorist? You're probably going to have a hard time someone defining that. You know, I think it's almost like one of those things where people say, well, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I know I, somebody who terrorizes people, right? Somebody who kills a lot of people, uh, you know, in one attack. And that's not that's not the case. That's not what terrorism is. We got to understand if we go back to Clausewitz, who wrote on war back in the like the, I don't know, 17th century, 18th century. Right. This guy. um believe he was a German, wrote on war and said that warfare is just an extension of a nation's foreign policy. So what he means is, you know, countries come together and they try to negotiate certain things to get their political uh, objectives accomplished. But when that when they can't do that anymore, when they can't negotiate and do it through through political maneuvering, then they resort to kinetic or warfare. Right. So let's first of all, now, what does that have to do with terrorism? Terrorism is a tactic. It is a warfare. So terrorism isn't a race, ethnicity. It's not the sole province of one group of people. It's just a tactic of warfare. So it is a tactic to use to achieve a political aim. Now, what makes it terrorism versus an act of war? Right. An act of war is usually two combatants pitted against each other. Right. Mm -hmm. That's you and me in Army Green going up against said peer group from another nation in uniform. That's that's warfare. Terrorism would be used usually by a paramilitary force, but not always. To be used against the civilian population. To break its support of a government to force a political change, an adoption or a negation of that, that country's policy, right? So in other words, our definition or a definition of terrorism would be the use of violence and intimidation and the furtherance of political objectives. That is important that people nail that down because that is what differentiates a criminal from a terrorist. All terrorists are criminals, but not all criminals are terrorists. So then when you see that, it's not just that the fact that the guy went up and blew up a building full of people. The question is, it becomes important to know why did he do it? It's not the the key that makes it terrorism isn't the fact that someone goes up and shoots up a building full of people. That's, you know, like Columbine High, right? What is the difference between the Columbine shooters and Nidal Hassan in 2009, who was the Fort Hood shooter, right? Both, right? Those were not, you know, in the, in, in the scale of body counts, you know, they didn't kill 3,000 people, but they shook the nation, right? By, and they terrorized their communities but they had, and they used the same modality of shooting up the place, but one was an act of terror and one was not. So the criminals of the Columbine shooters, right? That's a criminal act 
but it was motivated by revenge. These kids were mad at their classmates. They wanted revenge. They felt like they were getting picked on or they had this grievance, but it was a personal one. And they had no political goals or wanting to change or to do anything. Whereas Nidal Hassan was a jihadist who was committed to the act of jihad and was attacking, you know, Fort Hood and in response to U.S. foreign policy, you know, and and so on. All right. So why does that matter? Why? Why does it matter? Well, because if we we need to know. When we label something as terrorism, that that then comes brings to bear all kinds of tools and policies that the federal government and your local government can bring to bear to solve that. Right? There's against you. Yeah, yeah, against anyone they label as that actor. Right. So when you become labeled a terrorist or suspect of being a terrorist. That opens up a whole wide range of options that the government has to use that may not be available if you're just Joe Thug. Yeah, on the street doing whatever it is you're doing. Yeah, uh, you know that that goes to the the monitoring of social media, invading your privacy essentially because you are labeled as a terrorist. Exactly. It also and. Um, Hot dang, I hope I don't lose my train of thought here. But it also goes into uh, the political environment on how you can um, silence people, how you can deplatform people, how you can do all kinds of things. Well, I think back on the Las Vegas shooting, right, that we had a few years ago, right? This one dude, rando guy goes up in the, what was it, the Bellagio? I can't remember which hotel it was, but there's a concert going on down the street. And boom, he opens up and shoots a lot of people in the, uh, you know, in the crowd. And afterwards, I remember seeing news articles and they tended to be, you know, the usual suspects that come out and say, well, why are we calling this guy a terrorist? Is it because he's white? It's because he's white, isn't it? Because if he wasn't white, we'd be calling him a terrorist for, you know, just like we do everybody else. And I'm like, hang on, partner. We, he might be a terrorist. We don't know, but we don't know his motive. We still don't know why he did that. No. So if we don't, so let's go back to our why the definition of terrorism is so important. So if he did that because he was mentally ill, well, it's not a, it's not an act of terrorism, right? If he did it for revenge for some reason, or he wanted to get at somebody, and he was doing it for personal motives, then wasn't an act of terrorism. If he was doing it because he was politically motivated, right? Then he would be a terrorist, right? Timothy McVeigh, white dude, uh, blew up the Oklahoma City, you know, Oklahoma City bombing, right? Full-blown terrorist. I say yeah. lone wolf terrorist. He had political grievances and reasons for what he did. Those were not just personal, right? I mean, they they could be personal to him, but they also had a political uh, agenda to it, right? He wanted reprisals against the ATF and um, and and some of the other federal agencies for all that had occurred down at Waco and all that stuff. So, dude, straight up a terrorist. So, the the reason why it's so important is that you can't, as a security minded citizen who's trying to process all this crazy stuff that you're seeing in the news, it's important that you understand when definitions get thrown around, words do matter. And when I mean words matter, the meanings matter. 
You have to know what this stuff means. And it's always a tactic of the Marxist and, um, you know, the subversive to try to grab these words and own them. They want to own the definition. They want to be able to randomly assign those labels to anybody they want. And it's usually the people that disagree with them. Exactly. And, And a lot of that has been going on. Previously, I mean, we can't even talk about COVID or have a dissenting opinion on what you need to do with your health. Yeah. Um, You know, there's Afghanistan. It's the same thing. Uh, You know, people have dissenting opinions on that. That's fine. What's not fine is when you silence one of them. Yeah, right. Because now you're undermining the entire principles that the Western society was founded upon, and that was the right to debate ideas, to have open discussion and debate, to even ridicule ideas, to be able to ridicule an idea. And instead, it's, um, you know, they're, they're taking that is, but that is their goal. That is their go to is to take the word, take the phrase and own it so that they get to label who it is and who it isn't. And look, look, nobody wants to be accused of being a racist, right? Nobody wants to be accused of being a bigot or no one wants to be accused of being a terrorist. But the question is, just because you disagree with something or just because you don't support, does it mean that you are those things? Exactly. But that is part of their goal is to co-opt and own the language so that you can't make your voice heard. You can't put forward your ideas. And that is undermining the Western civilization as we know it. And that, that to me, ultimately is the big story but, but behind what's going on in Afghanistan and even linked to these um, domestic policies that are here. And by the way, uh, I'll, I'll just add that we've got 16 agencies uh, alphabet agencies, right, in the within the federal system, these intel law enforcement agencies, and none of them have a um, a uniform definition of what terrorism is. Uh, so, I don't know whether to laugh or cry. Uh, yeah, I mean, no one, no one. So, you know, the definition I gave you is mine, um, but each of these agencies kind of have their own definition of what terrorism is, and so. I don't think it's because it's a super complicated one. I think it's just, I think it benefits groups to not have a uniform um, definition. This is just kind of the cynic of me saying, because then they can, they it gives them the freedom to adopt the kinds of policies that are beneficial to them, not necessarily beneficial to you and me. Exactly. And, and that's the scary part is they're not, beneficial to the u.s citizen it's actually harming the u.s citizen yeah. in, in my mind yeah i mean it certainly it certainly can so again um i i mean that's really about all i would have to say on it i mean we could sit and go go way deep in the woods but i mean you know uh, we're not we're not holding ourselves as experts on this and we're not just the guy that hey you know I got deployed once and, you know, I spent some time there. Therefore, I'm an expert on this topic. I mean, it's not not that at all. We're kind of coming back from a 30,000 foot view and saying, okay, look, I can't do anything about what's going on over there. 
Um, I can't. Yeah. There, there's a lot of things that are going on here domestically. I can't do anything about as far as changing the policy or the zeitgeist or the the conditions. But I need to make sure that I'm seeing things clearly. That I have a framework to look at these things so that I can make preparations for myself and my family just to, you know, help take care of us. Right. And that to me, understanding words, formulating definitions and having a working knowledge of how this stuff works so that I can process and filter what I'm seeing. To me, I think that is the big story here Mm -hmm. for the, for the citizen to take away. Right. And I, I mean, remember this too, you're, you are responsible for your health, your safety and your freedoms. Yeah. You're yeah. responsible for that. So if you take care of you, you don't have to worry about the rest of that. Yeah, I agree. So uh, a little different type of episode. Again, we're sorry. Uh, we had that hiatus, man. I was down at Fort Polk, Louisiana. Uh <laughs> Well, anybody that's done a JRTC rotation, they know they know what I'm talking about. But um, anyway, but we're back. We hope to be uh, uh, getting back on the regular and putting more stuff out for you guys. So I just appreciate the uh, the email support and the comments that we've gotten. If you have any questions, if you have a topic you want us to cover, uh, go to just email us info at baritasdefense.com or you jump on our Facebook or Instagram page and just DM us. I mean, there, there's there's all kinds of ways to get in touch with us, but that's all I got. You got anything? No, we're good for the day. We'll call, all right, we'll well, call it on this one. All right. Well, good to see you, bro. You and uh, looking forward to uh, linking up with you here soon. And thanks again, everybody. And until next time, keep it pearl snapped.